This is a story about how a young and naive me didn't want to be alive anymore. It's not a sad story, but I decided to tell it today because of the passing of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade has me thinking about it. It starts with the suicide of Kurt Cobain back in the 90s. This was the first celebrity death that really shook me. At that point in my life, I hadn't experienced much death, celebrity, personal, or pet. I was not yet attuned to my own cycles of depression and the way these events can disrupt them. I was in college when it happened. I felt mature, but I was far from fully formed. It was during this time period when I would have been diagnosed with depression if that was something I was seeking out. Instead of talking to anybody about my feelings, I stayed up late, often alone, and babbled into my journal. Most of what I wrote can be summarized with one question. Why? Everything boiled down to me not understanding the events around me, personal or political. Kurt Cobain's suicide scrambled my brain a bit. I couldn't make sense of it because I thought these things had to have a logic to them. Several years before this, when I was in middle school... I found myself so low, I thought there was no point in living anymore. I wasn't good at the things I wanted to be good at, sports, and the people I crushed on didn't return my affections. These, to me, were the most important things in life. I was still grappling with the chaos that follows divorce and multiple moves from town to town that at one point resulted in me attending three schools in one year. It seemed like people didn't like me, but the truth is they just didn't know me, and a lot of that is because I didn't know myself. So one day, I took 20 aspirin, thinking that I would fall asleep forever. Aspirin is obviously not sleeping pills, but I didn't know that at the time. The naivete that could have killed me ended up saving me. This early failed attempt at suicide changed the way I thought about myself. In a weird way, I felt like I was impervious to drugs since those pills had no impact. It made me feel stronger, but it also forced me to start thinking about solutions when things got bad. A couple years later, I started to keep that journal, in which I would repeatedly ask the question, why? When Kurt Cobain died, because I couldn't make sense of it, I started to develop empathy for what he might have been dealing with. I felt as if I had been there. I mean, I hadn't been there exactly, but those feelings of the end had entered my mind. There are no solutions to these feelings, at least not for me, and they have stayed with me to this day, but my life since then has been a series of attempts to find that thing or those things that might keep the feelings at bay. It took me a very long time to get to it, but when I started to write plays, I felt like as if I had struck gold. Being a playwright is my emergency helpline. And I write plays that center on the variations of the questions I've been asking my entire life, and when it all goes well, I get to connect with others in the exploration of these questions. And I guess that's ultimately it. The connection. We get to ask questions of the world together, and it seems like years get added to my life each time I get to work with people. And I think that's the thing I've been ruminating on for a while now. I get strength from others, and I try to share that strength as well. And I love that theater can do this for people. 
part of me wants to go back in time to tell that 12-year-old me or the college me that there's this thing that allows you to be seen and heard. It might not be a cure, but it might be a purpose. It can sometimes be a challenge to experience joy. I'll admit that. But that's okay. It's simply the way my life works. And, you know, I'm so damn grateful to the people who have taken time to see me and hear me. They have quite literally given me life. So, this is for Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and Kurt Cobain and your friend and family member and neighbor, and colleague, and for you, if you need it. Welcome to the subtext brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This is Brian James Polak, host of the subtext and consummate question asker. A huge thanks to all of you who have rated and commented on the subtext through iTunes. I appreciate you sharing this podcast with the people in your lives who might find it interesting. Please keep doing these things. Thank you to everybody who's reached out over the past few months to tell me your thoughts and feelings about this podcast. I love hearing from you. If you have something to say, don't hesitate to contact the show via email, thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com, or send us a tweet at subtextpodcast. This month's guest is Karadadsvich, a playwright I have admired for a really long time. Karadad received a 2012 Obie Award for Lifetime Achievement in the Theater, a 2012 Edgerton Foundation New Play Award, an NNPN Rolling World premiere for Guapa, and 2011 American Theatre Critics Association Primus Prize for her play, The House of the Spirits. Her play, Red Bike, is in the midst of an NNPN Rolling World premiere as we speak. And from theatre actions she has spearheaded to the publications she has edited, contributed to, and published, Kitty Dad has continues to be the most prolific and inspiring playwright I have ever met. There is so much she has accomplished, I can't even fit it all here because I want to get to our conversation. So go visit her website, kadidadsfitch.com, to read all about her work as a writer, editor, translator, and activist. Now, on to our conversation that was recorded at Jackalope Theater's Frontier Space on the north side of Chicago. Uh, tell me what brings you to Chicago. What brings me to Chicago is uh, uh, partly... Uh, two things. One is a reading of Red Bike at Jackalope Theater's Frontier Space. And the other is a production of Detroit, which is the Chicago premiere of this play that uh, opened last spring at Caramia Theater in Dallas. So two things bring me to Chicago at the moment. <laughs> well, lucky us, lucky me, because <laughs> I think I think it was, I think I met you, I met you a few years ago and we were at a conference some it tcg was, it was a tcg conference yes, it was. and kansas uh, city it was in kansas city <laughs> and i didn't have any time we didn't have any time none it was like constant two ships passing in the night but we were in a group at one point we were we were in a breakout together. group that yeah. we were self-selected right and i remember it was like this 
about from, international theater. From my point of view, it was like, a, <laughs> it was like an amazing all-star group because Morgan Janess was in it. She was. As well. Yeah. And I was like, I'm with these all-stars. <laughs> this is like, it was like so awe-inspiring. It was fun. Um, but it has been amazing to uh, know you from a distance through social media since then. Like, you know, we've exchanged lots of emails ever since then and I've gotten to know your work more since then and I have been uh, incredibly inspired by you ever since meeting you because you have this engine that goes and goes and goes and you create so many things and you've created so many things that have been like valuable and important to me directly Mm -hmm. that I've participated in like the After Orlando project and to see you um, at the forefront of so many, um, like uh, the audience, what was it with the TCG series? Stages of Resistance. The Stages of Resistance series. Oh, that was for the Lark, For the sorry. Lark, and then yeah. the one you were doing for TCG back when I met you. I did like three, I actually did three of them. Uh, one of them that became Innovation in Five Acts, that book, and then yeah. Audience Revolution, which actually started from that Kansas City right. conference, yeah. And I remember... Uh, feeling like when we met feeling like I had so much to say and you asked if I would contribute to the audience revolution one and I was so excited by this opportunity because it was my first time uh, to say something outside of my Los Angeles theater community where I was working at the time and uh, and I never contributed because I couldn't I realized I didn't have on this topic right I didn't have anything to say that hasn't been said Mm-hmm. So uh, why am I saying anything? So if I say anything, it's just to hear the sound of my own voice. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I just sort of let it pass because everybody, like all of these amazing people, were writing these great um, essays and call. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to really categorize them, but essentially, there were reflections and essays yeah. and musings and polemical rants and uh, all sorts of fascinating things you know that series that became audience revolution the book um was incredibly impactful for my own work and and i and i think i didn't quite realize it at the time i was just kind of like this is a book and i know it's a book and this Mm -hmm. is amazing and people are writing amazing things but also i just it just kind of turned some things around in terms of my thinking about form and audience engagement and what that means and how a play works with an audience. And I think that that's, it was pivotal in, in a, a variety of unexpected ways, which has led to a whole new, new, you know, as writers, we're always recycling. <laughs> you know, we're always dealing in our own mess, but uh, uh, at least it feels new to me, a new stage of my writing life. So, yeah. What came out of it for you, specifically? I think... Well, you know, I've been really interested in intimacy in theater for a long time. And I mean intimacy in the sense of an intimate engagement with the audience. What does that mean? What do we mean when we say that something's direct, um, directly speaking with, in conversation with? Mm -hmm. So this notion of the play slash conversation is something I kind of keep circling around. And and I think that uh, several of, especially my um, non, my non 
my plays don't look like plays on the page mm-hmm. uh, necessarily, at least from some people's eyes, um, are really an experiment in that, mm-hmm. uh, of kind of thinking about how that text sort of functions in the theater space architecturally, but also how it functions with an audience and how the audience can take ownership of it or how, especially in, and Red Bike is sort of emblematic only in the sense that it's um, also written without a character designation and it's, uh, who walks into it walks into that experience and I'm very interested in that idea from an actor's point of view but also from how an audience perceives um, a text and and how many people can embody it. Yeah, Red Bike is actually really... I found it to be... I mean, it's a beautiful play. Uh, Full disclosure, my day job is uh, producing with the students uh, Red Bike. Um, and I'm super excited about this. It's going to happen in October. Yay. Uh, but when I read the play, I love that it is, it's fully formed, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's incomplete because the way you've constructed this piece, it can be for one, two, three, four, et cetera, numbers of people, and that just that changes mm-hmm. the form itself. So it, in a way, this fully formed idea is incomplete until a group of collaborators gets on board mm-hmm. and creates their interpretation of it. And uh, what's great about it is you're on an NNPN rolling world premiere of it, so you are going to see probably several vastly different interpretations of your work, right? Yeah, I mean, I've just come off of the first production of it. Mm-hmm. So at uh, Pygmalion Theatre Company in Salt Lake City, uh, they did the three-actor score, um, I'm in rehearsals with it in Philadelphia right now. Uh, it opens in June of 2018. Um, and they're doing a three-actor score, but a different three-actor score than the three-actor score that was done <laughs> in Salt Lake City. Meaning they cut the text up in a different way? Yeah. You know, it's been interesting because the the two-actor score, which is the one that no theater in Cincinnati is going to do in January of 2019, um, is the one that sort of Im- impacted how I built the three-actor score for Salt Lake City. And and I thought, well, that's done. And then I started working with the folks in Philadelphia, and they were like, well, they're also working with a band, so the band's kind of scoring music and playing live mm-hmm. and and treating. And so they were interested in also those voices of those actors and, you know, who they are, mm-hmm. right, and the experience of the play. And so they were like, hey, we think we want to break it up slightly differently because of the people in the room, you know, which makes total sense to me. And so they just sent me that score, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. I even like this too, you know, but it's like it is a different version, you know. And uh, and now I keep thinking, oh, I have to have add another file to, like, <laughs> the archive file for Red Bike because people will ask me, well, can I get the – the Salt Lake version or can I get the Philly version and it's been complicated because on NPX New Play Exchange when they were asking me upload the most recent draft and I was like well which one right Right, because right. I could upload the so you know I could upload the solo version, which is the reading uh, of it uh, tonight in Chicago, May seventh, for archival purposes, twenty eighteen um, exists, and and it and you know, but but you know, it also depends on who's in the room and how it's broken up, and and I all I just keep saying to people is that make sure that. Uh, that if you're doing a multi-actor version, then then make sure that it's uh, actors from all different backgrounds and everything, you know, in one room. And so that the idea of sharing, and it's still the idea of sharing one role. So that's always been true. So it's not like they're playing different people. It's Mm -hmm. always sharing the role of the kid who's the central voice. And so, so, but I'm interested in splitting that identity and figuring out how people look at that. 
So when you have a when you have a play like this, where it can be interpreted in many different ways, you can have multiple people performing the role. You can have a single person performing a role. What is what is the most important thing for you to be conveyed in the play? Truth, honesty, vulnerability, passion. Uh, a kind of naked. I think the play requires a kind of nakedness from the performer, and nakedness in the sense of their their transparency and availability with the audience. So even if it's the one actor version or the two or the three or heaven knows uh, how, how else it's broken up. I'm a little dizzy from like even looking at the four versions that exist right now. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that, making sure that it's never, oh, that kid over there. That we're sort of witnessing that story, but it's we're all in the room together mm-hmm. with the kid. And uh, yeah, and that to me is like essential. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm worried. How would, how would you describe, like how would you describe the sort of like uh, narrative of this of this play for people the narrative of the play well on a uber level it's on a very simple level it's a, you know it is a bike ride it's a kid goes out in the middle of the afternoon in small town USA unnamed because I also want each production to make it local to where they are mm-hmm. um, and and but it is you know about things that are quite true in, uh, in certainly United States uh, consciousness, which is towns that are left behind, that are uh, in a state of ab- neglect or abandonment uh, for various reasons, factories leaving and industry leaving, um, disrepair on many levels. So it's essentially about class and power and who has it and who doesn't and why and how do you walk through that and on a bike ride on on an afternoon uh this kid this unnamed kid experiences i think um what i call the political awakening or uh, a location of their political agency in the world and uh and it's the the emblematic metaphor of it is the freedom of the bike its mobility its ability to to cross all lines, uh, mm-hmm. all spaces, uh, to also be able to see uh, on a journey. And, you know, this question of where do we look and where do we don't look as human beings and why? Who are we looking at as our neighbors in society and who, who do we think are not our neighbors? And so so questions of, of citizenship. Um, and then it's also an encounter, you know, on the fairy tale level of the play, it's an encounter with a monster, you know, and, and the mm-hmm. monster is... Uh, uh, not surprisingly, the monster of capitalism and and how it it kind of it systemically has created the conditions that the kid is in, uh, and 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 which the kid is partly complicit in because of how they've been brought up. So I think that it's about that encounter and and how do you wrestle with that and and how do you hopefully transcend that and and for me, it's always been a question of of a play about. I think, you know, one of the things people keep asking me, well, it's about this time and this moment. And I think, well, yes, although I was just as angry when Bush was in power, uh, (laughs) Bush W. uh, But I think that it has to do with, um, you know, these are struggles that won't go away, I think, you know, anytime soon, the way our our society is built. And uh, I feel like I was really interested in placing the most vulnerable voice at the center of the narrative. Um, that's the voice that's also, that's the body that's learning. They're growing up now, and we're going to be our future. And so how does that future speak back to us? Mm -hmm. So I was interested in this idea of like how memory works in the play, because it is now, but it's also looking back on the now in some weird kind of iteration of it. And um, yeah, and it's also, you know, about how, how we find joy in our lives. Because I think that one of the things 
plays sometimes come out of creative outrage and or political outrage, anger, you know, oh my God, I'm so angry about. And I think that's very easy to write about in a sense that you can go to that quickly, quite immediately as a writer and then tap into that. But the harder thing to do is to move past and through your anger to get to a place of positive or what I call uh, possible true change, uh, finding joy in the act of calling truth to power as opposed to only staying in the place of rage, which I think can actually start to do damage to a system. Yeah, actually, this uh, going back to something we were just talking about a couple minutes ago, the Stages of Resistance series that you curated for The Lark, uh, I wrote a piece for that, and my experience in writing it was developing this connection with myself about going beyond the rage and using the tools that I have Mm -hmm. to do what I, only what I can like just, but to do something Yes. and uh, a tiny impact is still an impact. Mm -hmm. And these are the sort of realizations I had in thinking through this process of Mm -hmm. how to be an artist today, right now in this this period we're in. Um, Did you grow up in a place where uh, being a person, (laughs) a young person on a bicycle, which is like the first moment of relative freedom, right? It was, I was terrified of my bike. I had one when I was in New Jersey growing up. Uh, I partly grew up in New Jersey and, uh, Patterson, New Jersey, and in Miami, Florida, and partly also in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, with a brief stint in Salt Lake, actually. Uh, that was very short. Um, but um, I was terrified of my bike. <laughs> so maybe I'm conquering my fear of that uh, by writing the play. Uh, but I was always, I always loved, I've always loved bicycles and theater. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful image when you see somebody riding a bike on stage and uh, it's just so beautiful it's just so beautiful and I'm also obsessed with the Tour de France so uh, (laughs) I really am and so so I think that that kind of like now not so secret obsession uh, manifested in the play I also thought that it was just a like an image that I felt oh I think everyone even if they didn't have that bike wanted you know Mm -hmm. wanted that thing when they were a kid they wanted that thing you know and so uh because it just feels like and it's pre um it's like uh it's not a computer game i wanted something that would felt analog right yeah uh, because i think when you're not dependent i always think of this story it's a it's a slight sidebar but uh, I was working with Olan Jones, who's, of course, an amazing composer and performer um, based in Los Angeles. And we were in a ri- uh, writing composer studio together and really having a great time. And there was this one day where we, all these composers and writers were in the room, and the power went out. So everyone was, like, on their computers, mm-hmm. writing their scores and, like, all this stuff and writing their lyrics and then suddenly they were like, oh, my God, we, we, can't, we can't do anything. Right. Whoa, there's no power. And Olan, <laughs> brilliant as she is, she, like, took her, her scrapbook, and she started drawing staff lines on the page. And she right. just and said, I'm writing. I don't know what you're doing. She took a pencil out, and she started writing right, her score. Right. And I was like, yes, because nobody can take that away from you. Like, you don't have to depend on the machine to do it for you. You can do it. It's in you. You know how to write the staff. You know what your time signatures are. You can do it. And so I just... I wanted that feeling that that the pre-digital can give you, which is like writing a longhand on a page, or that where it's like 
that's actually direct contact and it's just as powerful as and perhaps even something you can take away you're not reliant on the technology to do it for you and so i was i thought and i think because as a place as which is true which is a bike's motion depends on you it depends on what how where you want to go and how where you you know how you pedal it how fast you go how slow you go etc and mm-hmm. so that that's also involved with political agency mm-hmm. and how you see i mean it brought me back to my early childhood, you know, I grew up in an I grew up in an analog era, and the bike was such an important, such an important thing for me. I remember uh, as a very, very young person, there were these movies in the seventies about biking. Like biking became this breaking away, breaking away, breaking like, away. Steve Tesich, an amazing cute. playwright, then, wrote that beautiful screenplay. And then, uh, and then ET came out, and I think I was maybe like. <laughs> I was maybe like seven years old or right. eight years old when it came out and all these kids and their bikes and uh, they seemed so free and I wanted that. Yeah. And I, uh, and when I had that around that time period, it was like this amazing thing. The you know, my world was maybe only, you know, a few blocks circumference from the house where I grew up, but it was humongous because it wasn't the yard anymore. Right. And it's the first time I felt like I had free thought. Yes. And these are the things I'm these are the things I'm connecting to in a sort of visceral way when I'm reading uh Red Bike. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> uh, I can just echo and say yes. <laughs> <laughs> where do you where do you consider home? Mm. Home. It's always a difficult question. I mean I think recently I've been saying New York only because spiritually I feel connected to New York and, mm-hmm. and I always have. Um and maybe other people do, you know, I don't know, like it's that kind of city where you, I la- you land there and you're like, ah, everybody's kind of crazy and weird. It's okay to be crazy and weird, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And, um, but it also, you know, it's, I just felt like immediately connected uh, when I was there, even when I was visiting as a kid. And then, um, and then it's also where I like first, after I left grad school, I mean, I got my degree and so at UC San Diego. And then after I left UC San Diego, I went to work with uh, Irene Fornes in New York, um, which ended up being a four-year adventure. And, mm. and you know, it's just such a central formative part of my writing life. Um, yeah, that, that in a way, it, it's, that's always there, even though um, so much has changed in the city and, and everything. But I feel like my, some, somewhere part of my roots as a writer are there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think home. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But but then sometimes there are other cities that I can see like sister homes or whatever, you know, just emotionally. Right. And you are, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm uh, you know, we aren't living in an analog age anymore. So mm-hmm. I am experiencing you through social media yeah. and you seem to constantly be on the move. Mm-hmm. which is uh, why I'm not surprised by the answer to what is home being relatively complicated, <laughs> yes. right? It's, yeah. not an easy, it's not an easy answer. Um, do you like your life? Oh, my gosh. Gosh, I don't know. Like, I, I always feel, as I was posting last night on Twitter, <laughs> um, tweet, tweet, tweet away, whereas, like, I feel really grateful when, when, you know, this is a business of ebb and flow, and, and we all know that if we look at any, any artist's life, especially in the theater, and, and so 
I'm just always grateful when things are, are people seem to be responding to the work and mm-hmm. work is begetting work and, and, and I feel somehow that audiences or, or other theater people are connecting to it and that makes me happy. So I think that the liking has to do with like, oh, like these crazy visions I'm having when I'm writing like at the writing table that then hopefully make them make their way out into the world some way, shape or form seem to be finding like people going, Oh, I'm interested in this or what is this? And what are you doing next? And so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, and I think that for a, a while as a writer, which I still think is true, um, cause I'm interested in the wilderness. Um, but, but I think that for a while as a writer, and I think it had to do with, I was, I shall say that I was, I was feeling like people weren't connecting to the work and, and, but I also think that partly it had to do with um, there was a period in my writing life where I was really and it was, may have been the sign of the time but I was really interested in writing very dark, very nihilistic alienating plays um, and I, I, some of those plays I really love, like I think I consider them some of my best work and, but I also I also have been feeling like I don't really want to live in that space emotionally anymore mm. as an artist mm-hmm. and it's really it's hard for one thing to constantly be like more pain and more pain yeah, and more pain because right. after a while you're like you know what that's it i'm done like i can't you know uh, i mean i can try going back there but I, but i think i think there's something curious and complicated about uh if you're a writer writing about trauma or traumatic subjects that people think that's all you do and so I really wanted to change the narrative I, for mm-hmm. myself as an artist. And also it's like, I don't want to keep writing that kind of play. And, and that's the, not the only space I work from as an artist. And, and I think that through editing, through my life as an editor, and through my life as a curator, artivist, and the theater actions that I've curated and organized, other things started to happen in terms of the way I started to see the possibilities of the page. And so this sense of openness, but also, you know, there's a... So the dear and wonderful Ellen McLaughlin once said to me, we were at a writer's retreat together, and she said, I was reading some poetry to her that I'd written. We were supposed to be sharing plays, mm. I know, but I was like bored that day. <laughs> I didn't want to share my plays. And so, and so she was like, oh, what's that? And I was like, oh, there's some poems I'm writing. I write them, you know, occasionally and for me, just for fun. And, uh, and she was like, why isn't that voice in your writing, in your plays? And, and I was like, what do you mean? Like, and she's like, no, it's very, it's actually quite different. And, and I kind of was like a little, I was like, Ellen, what do you mean by that? I was a little bristly. Uh, but I was also like deeply curious. And, um, and I started to think about it long and hard. I mean, not in, in the moment. I was like, I just reacted. But then like months and months later, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about what she'd said. And I kept asking myself, why isn't that voice not as present in my plays and what's ha- wh- why am I not allowing that to occur as a writer so I, I sort of made a part of changing the narrative also had to do with like I want that that I treat as kind of private and just this personal kind of space for me as a writer to manifest in my writing and I, and I think it, it sort of altered everything you know and uh, it made me feel much happier and freer on the page and it also uh, this idea of like you know the map is endless or, or there's more possibility once you do that, once you break something open. Uh, and it also reconnected me to stuff that I'd been doing 
because I have two places that archive my work, so so they they're constantly like send me the you know the backlog of back catalog or whatever, and mm-hmm. I had to sort of go through papers of my stuff, and and uh, and there was a I found some of my writing from was it high school? Oh my gosh, I think it was high school, and there were like these they were sort of play poems. Uh, and I was like, oh, my God, I was doing it then. But I sort of forgot that I'd done that. You know, I forgot that I, that's actually where I started as a mm-hmm, writer. Mm-hmm. And so I've been, I feel like I've been going back. I've been going, I want to get to that place again <laughs> where I started because that was the beginning of a journey that was sort of left unexplored. And so I think I'm re-exploring it now as a writer. When you were writing the, the, the dark stuff, right? Really the, dark. Do you think that was... Uh, is there a chicken and egg relationship to how you were feeling? Like, were you feeling that way and it was manifesting on the page? Or were these ideas that you were writing making you feel that way? Yeah. I think I was really... I'm interested in representations of violence and what does that mean, mm-hmm. especially on stage, for an audience, for performers, for directors. How do we treat violence? What is that? And so I was I was in that space of, as a writer of... You know, I you know, deeply impacted by you know Euripides and the the darker Shakespeare's like Lear and you know and 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 just thinking about that terrain emotionally mm-hmm. uh, as a as a vibrant and very exciting theatrical terrain. I mean, I'm interested in Genet for God's sake. So as soon as you're <laughs> as soon as you decide that that's what you're interested in as a writer, that it will lead you down a certain path. And I think that so I was I was just in a space to kind of really. It wasn't like about being provocative. It was really trying to treat that as a poetic subject and trying to figure out um, what the body in pain and what the body in uh, magnified pain on stage represents and how do we view it and how to regard it as you would do kind of looking at a Francis Bacon painting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking of it that way. And so I, I wasn't going through like, oh, drama, you mm-hmm. know, and craziness in my life. It was more like, oh, you know, I'm... I want to play in that kind of world from from a sort of painterly aspect as a writer uh, and from a poetic space as a writer, maybe from a song space as a writer. But um, I also feel like I reached sort of my limit of that, um, especially when, when I think, like after I worked on House of the Spirits, which is quite painful material, but it's also not me. I'm responding to somebody else's text. Um, it gave me a different way in through that kind of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, ah, you know, it's okay. I now can make peace with this <laughs> in a strange mm-hmm. way. And also, how many times can you look at the dark painting? Do you know what I mean? Right. It's sort of like staring at a bunch of, like, you know, Goyas, you know, like those very intense, the black paintings. Mm-hmm. You know, if you stare at the, you know, I was like, I remember being obsessed with them for a long time and then going, God, I don't want to live in that space anymore. Like, at least not for a while. And also because... We were in very dark times, <laughs> just yeah. politically, you know? And so it's like, I don't want to replicate that. Right. I actually want to go against that and try to create a different vocabulary, one that's maybe an alternate space, a more transformative space, a space of possibility and potentiality. Because then I think the political game becomes potential is possible. Things can change. There's a way to sort of change all of our narratives if we want to. Right, yeah. And not yeah. play them back. It's funny you say, you talk about how... Uh, Ellen McLaughlin had you rethinking the sort of poetic nature of your mm-hmm. writing. And uh, because I read these two most recent works, well, not maybe the most recent, but two recent works of yours, which are Red Bike and Holler River. Yeah. 
And they are long poems to they me. Are. Hollow River feels like an opera. Yes. Uh, it, I call it a big song of a play. <laughs> it really is. It's, yeah. it, it is, you know, there are songs in it, mm-hmm. which might give you the impression that this is when the song stops and this is when the but, song ends. But no. But the entire piece <laughs> mm-hmm. feels sung through. Yes. And uh, it also feels like uh, a very long poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like Red Bike feels like a very long poem. So when you talk about... Uh, mm-hmm. having this moment with Ellen. I'm not sure how long ago that was. It was like 10 years ago, but I didn't... As a writer, it was interesting. So this is like a weird thing, too. So I was working on a really dark play <laughs> when I was in that workshop with Ellen at Hedgebrook. And, um, you know, kind of like... You know, it was of celebrity culture and trauma and objectification. And, so, and a play that I like, and it's all fine. But... <laughs> But then, but I was also kind of a little bit bored with myself a little bit. I was like, eh, writing this other thing. Again, just as a side project, just for me. And then she said that. And then it took about 10 years for me to kind of process. Because first I was just like, yeah, Ellen, I love you, but really that doesn't... <laughs> you know, it was like, I don't know how that belongs on the stage. You right. know, I couldn't figure out yeah. what that meant. And then coincidentally, maybe like two years after Ellen said that to me, Alberto Sandoval Sanchez, who's this wonderful scholar uh, of Latinx theater, I had posted a poem of mine on No Passports list just for fun. I was just like, hey, here's a poem for like Thanksgiving or something. And then he wrote back to me directly off list, and he was like, wow, this is so interesting. This voice is not in your play. <laughs> and I was like, what is up? Okay, now right. I have to deal with this. And, right. and then, I, and then I, it was like hard reckoning time because I wondered about what we think about. You know, I wrote a, I edited a book a while ago on censorship and self-censorship and writing. And, and I was thinking, am I censoring myself when I'm writing? Have I decided that this doesn't belong that somehow my, what I call my direct expression as an mm-hmm. artist is not theater? Mm-hmm. And why am I making that distinction in my head? And so I started to question that. And also thinking back of my love of Lorca and like, and he, you know, that famous quote of his, right? A play is a poem standing up. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, huh, hmm, let me think about that for a little bit more. And then I thought, oh, okay, like maybe, the, how can I turn that? How can I make that happen in my work? Uh, and and then, like, you know, these things happen in so many different ways in our lives as writers. So there's a play of mine called Fugitive Pieces, which is a play with songs. Uh, and it's sort of an opera, <laughs> kind of, in a way. It, it is kind of sung through, in a sense. And uh, it had an amazing production in Austin, and now is being turned into a film called Fugitive Dreams with the same director who directed it in Austin. And... That play I had a kind of troubled relationship with. I loved the play, but then it only had a short life as a play. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, my play, I love you. <laughs> and, then, and then, but you know, you know, ephemeral art that we're in, right. it was published, and that's fine. And it lived there. And I thought, well, it lives on the page. And people sometimes would say to me, oh, Fugitive Pieces, I wonder what that is, and you're writing again. And I was like, you know, that was that time. I don't know. And then... Because the film, we started talking about making a film of it, Jason Newlander and I, and then he was like, and I was like, oh my God, that play. Oh my God, I, I haven't, like that terrain, I just, and the songs, and then, and I think because through all of that, Twelve Ophelias, which is, it seems to have a cult following, so that play gets done a lot, and, and that's kind of like a weird poem of a play too, and I was like, 
I miss that. Mm. I miss that, but I sort of wanted to come at it from this other space as a writer, knowing a little bit more about writing <laughs> than I did when I first wrote some of those uh, about like how I wanted to face the page. And, and I think much more intentional uh, way of approaching it, but also a much freer space. And so, so yeah, so I think, I think now it's like I just sit down and go, hey, what's up? But also I feel like I'm, because I've realized I'm writing a cycle, so, which I didn't know when I was writing Red Bike. I suddenly, I wrote Red Bike and I was like, hmm, what's happening in the other town next to Red Bike? Right. <laughs> and I just kept following the towns that I was building in my head. Um, that it's that it's just kind of, it's opened up something where it feels, I don't know if you have this feeling as a writer, Brian, but like sometimes when you're writing and it just sort of, comes to you it just sort of happens yeah and there's that great phrase by chris good the wonderful playwright and theater maker where he talks about when you're making when you're making theater what you're doing is making a space for something to happen and that's what a play is you're Mm -hmm. making a space for something to happen Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i feel like i feel like i'm finally doing that like i'm or i figured or i figured something out of my head like of like oh this is space is I'm just I've made the space the space is but inside of it other things are allowed to sort of filter through and and so I feel it's not like you know it's all coming from the muse or the you know whatever but but that it's that I feel like if at least for now I figured out a space where I'm like it's okay I've given myself permission one (laughs) two trust and which also involves vulnerability on the page. And three, uh, uh, like formally, what am I going to do next? And that becomes sort of the thing that sort of, that kind of stirs it up for me. Right. That's like the alchemy there. I think it, I, I yearn to have that sustained through an entire piece because I have these moments and it might last a series of lines. It might last a couple pages. And when I get into that place yeah. uh, where it just comes out, those moments end up being the only moments that not that don't get rewritten. Yes, because they are so authentic and they and so real and raw mm-hmm. that they 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 don't need to be changed. And mm-hmm. everything else that I'm kind of like wedging in there, that's what's getting hacked and edited yeah. through rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. But those yeah. moments, and I'll I'll see every play I have maybe has like at least one mm-hmm. and everything's working around that right and you get through you get to that section again and you're just like oh no that that just feels right yeah and it feels right because it came from some other place that is unnameable you'll get yourself out of your own way yeah. i think is what happens yeah you sort of i mean it's funny i kind of maybe it was t.s Eliot. was it t.s i hope i'm not misquoting t.s Eliot, but where it was like that's what you have to do as a writer you have to get out of your way that's much harder than it is seems <laughs> to say. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like because there's so much in the way, mm-hmm. and the more you write, the more there's in the way mm-hmm. because you have like, oh, what I did before, what I did back then, and who's you know, and, and who, what what is everybody else doing? Because you can't ignore the field, like that's ridiculous. Right. But uh, and what's happening in the world, right? But um, but you do have to kind of like just step out step out of it and it's almost and which is why I love that quote from Chris Good of making a space for something to happen because in a way what happens is that you have to step out and just be able to look at it and then you and then you just kind of can work from that place of it's not even distance or observership it's more like I can just play in the sandbox the sandbox is just over there yeah 
And yeah. so you can just look at the sandbox and, and, and watch it. And, and I remember when I worked with Irene, she had to sometimes do models, like, you know, not to scale. Oh, my gosh. But, like, with cardboard and stuff of, like, our plays. Like, do sets. Yeah. Uh, with, like, you know, cut-up figures and, like, you know, little, you know, paper dolls or whatever. And, and, it's, and I think at the time it was a rewrites tool, uh, when we were where we were in the lab, but actually, I've been rethinking about that a lot because I think actually those story houses, those little, you know, faux models, were about being able to really just kind of see it in front of you, and then be able to play inside of that and and to develop that skill as a writer. Mm. Which is a, which I think sometimes we're writing and we're like we're so in it we can't see it. Mm-hmm. But actually, you have to get to the place where you can see it so you can be in it. It's a really crazy, crazy thing. Yeah. Uh, I recently spoke with Carlos Murillo, and he uh-huh. mentioned Maria Irina Fornes, and uh, I asked him to take me inside the room a little bit to tell, tell me what it's like to work with her in this space. And I'm wondering if you could talk about her as yeah. well. Yeah, so complicated. It's so intense. I mean, you know, four years of writing and... Writing and also writing about a work. She also directed a play of mine. Um, so you've I, had some intimate experience with her, for, and from different points of view. Because as a director, she was quite different than she was as a as a writer in the room, right? Uh, and as a teacher in the room. But they were related, of course. I mean, I think that being in the room with Irene was one. You know, I think all of us who have studied with her can can say this. I I, I wouldn't argue uh, that it was about truthfulness. It was about finding your truth, uh, which is why the plays that. And the playwrights that that are still writing from from that tutelage mm-hmm. have this kind of and it's what attracted me to work with her is that the students and amazing writers that were coming out of the lab and other places where she taught there was a distinctiveness to the voice, but there was also specificity about looking at theater mm. and it felt like every every writer was looking at theater from a different angle, and I was like, which is true, I know in the field, but sometimes you know right <laughs> not so much and so and and at the time she used to say oh i 'm creating hothouse flowers mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe that 's not so good like she was like, I wonder about that you know and but i I always felt that sort of beautiful like how cool to have all these amazing hothouse flowers making these amazing plays. And I think the relentless, the relentless gaze that she had on every person's work was quite brutal, quite kind of like, that's not truthful, like, write again, you mm-hmm. know? And, which is hard to take, I think, as a writer, because you're like, come on, I gave you my best. Come on. You know what I mean? You want to be. But then you, you, yeah. what she said is that you have to keep, interrogating the writing yes keep querying it and i Mm -hmm. think that practice of constantly querying the work which also related to seeing and how do you see it um makes you tougher with yourself but also like i said paradoxically more open because you can sort of i always say it's very easy to write the first 500 words that's just like gibberish and then you kind of get to the next 500 and you're like okay maybe there's something here and then you get to the next 500 and you're like okay now I'm sort of I think I'm writing <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's like and it's figuring out where the layers are and how to get to those layers and in a sense working with Irene was about getting to the layers much quicker mm. once you once you figured out once you figured out for yourself as an artist in the room <sighs> identifying what your patterns are mm-hmm then you can kind of jump cut, jump cut through your patterns mm-hmm. and kind of get to the place much faster, hopefully, if you're mm-hmm. in, if in a good 
mental and emotional space to deal with the material that you're writing. But and there was also the sense of discovery, like eternal discovery. Like you didn't, nobody came in that I know of. Anyway, was like, ah, oh, my play is about blah blah blah. You know, it was all of like, what are you? Uh, what will we discover today? And so mm-hmm. I think that that approach actually lets you kind of just be open to the universe as opposed to dictating what the play is going to be, mm-hmm. um, which is the universe will tell you if you're open. It will. You have to trust it. And if you have skills, right, if you have a toolkit as a writer, then you can technically go about harnessing what the universe is telling you. Yeah, yeah. I, what I tell, uh, I teach very, 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 very new playwrights. Yeah. Like, they are not playwrights yet. They are what's this weird form of writing I want to try it Mm -hmm. and uh the thing that I'm struggling to convey is what you're what you're describing and that is uh getting to the point where it's time to listen to your play tell you what it needs Mm -hmm. and then give it what it needs where you're no longer forcing anything uh and that's a hard sort of like switch to flip it is I mean I, I just saw Nick Cave uh he has these uh, theater conversations that he does. They're called, So What Do You Know? Nick Cave, the yes, singer? Yes, the singer. He just did one at Symphony Space in New oh, York. Wow. And uh, he's doing these conversations with his audience where he plays some songs, but he also just talks to his audience about like form and whatever questions pop up, he'll answer. Yeah. It's fascinating. And they're kind of like community gatherings. And, uh, and he was talking at the one in Symphony Space, he was talking about... Somebody asked him about his early career with Birthday Party and all of that, and he said, yeah, you know, because they said, oh, do you revisit those songs? And he said, well, as a writer, I don't. Like, I really, like, I wrote them when I was, like, mm. you know, 20, and like, forget that, and I'm, not a, I'm a different person now, right? Uh, but he said, What's, what I notice about myself as a, as a, he identifies as a writer first, not a singer, mm. uh, as a writer slash singer slash frontman for a band, et cetera, is that... Those that early stuff that I did was very didactic. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you how to feel. Yeah, and yeah. I remember. And then he said, and then I just and he said, now I'm like, that's there's no space for the audience. Right, right. That's like that's just cutting them off. And so he said, and what I'm and he said what I'm interested in is in how do I invite the audience in, and how do you do that? Is my making work that has an openness to it and that's maybe more abstracted and that's allowing for like every person in the room to have a different version of what it is in their head um, and that is absolutely not that is not telling them what to think it's not telling them what it is every single moment mm-hmm. uh, and that he's and he said he was talking about I think he was trying to justify as he described it uh, what instigated these kind of desire to do these community gatherings with his audience mm-hmm. and uh and, and he said, I'm interested in figuring out how do we create spaces with each other that are benevolent um, and that how art making can be benevol- benevolent. And this is, you know, ironic coming from someone who writes incredibly dark, right, intense, right. you know, murder ballads. And, you know, but he says, but I'm, but actually that he says he writes that because his imaginary world is fueled by images like that, mm. but that it, but he's, but he comes at it now as an artist from a space of figuring out belonging and benevolence. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just found that so inspiring, but so true of, of like writing plays, right? Like sometimes very early, early careers, maybe not even playwrights yet, are like, I want to make my audience, I want the audience to think this right now. And I want, you know, and it's like, actually you have to do just the opposite because they have no, 
the audience is there to play with you. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't give them anything to do, then why are they there? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Uh, when do you, when do you, when you're, uh, this is an example of something that will get cut out. <laughs> no, you love that. I love the little glips. <laughs> <laughs> what is your earliest memory of writing something? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, my mom says I was always writing. Like, I was just always, like, scribbling. I mean, when I finally learned how to write. Mm-hmm. Um, um, she used to read to me bedtime stories. So this idea of the, the story being told to me and also, like, being out loud mm-hmm. um, was, I think... So that's a kind of writing in your head, right? Because you're sort of seeing the images as somebody reads you a story. That developed into me wanting to read books and kind of like, I want to read my own stuff. Um, but what I would do, apparently, and, and I'm, you know, as I remember it and as, as my parents have told me, is that I would, I, would read the st- like, I would read the picture book of the story with the captions and all that. And then I would trace, because I'm a terrible visual artist, so I would trace the images and then I would write a different story underneath. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> to those great. images. That's great. And... Uh, it's an act of rewriting, yeah? yeah. And um, and so those were the first stories, and I would I would create them as books, and I would staple them and like give them a new title, and like they were little books that I made for myself. Um, so that was like the first. It was the first stirrings of just just this idea of words, and and I think word and image, and I think that maybe it's not surprising that I'm interested in theater because it's word and image, it's word images that are functioning. Um, then I think, you know, I started writing a lot of short stories and poems and songs, right? Because I studied piano, voice, and guitar. And I was interested in the idea of performance from that angle. And then... Uh, was this in, like, high school? This is, like, oh, my God. This is, like... Uh, middle school? Primary middle school. Mm-hmm. And then in junior high, my English teacher... I was just writing short story after short story. I don't think it's my strongest form, but whatever. I was writing them. And she said to me, why don't you write a play? Which I thought was quite surprising because mm-hmm. that was not what I was thinking about at all. It was certainly not in my purview. I mean, I loved Shakespeare, but I thought Shakespeare Shakespeare. And musicals are musicals, and that was my only other reference point. So, so this idea of a play was like, what? And then she was like, I just have a hunch that you might like it because a lot of your short stories have tons of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. And I really wanted to get an A in the class, and I did want to impress her tremendously, uh, which helps sometimes. You, you want to have an approving voice at the other side of the writing. And uh, and so I was like, oh, I want to find out what this play thing is. And so I, in junior high, I was living in Miami at the time. I went to my local library, and I asked the librarian, where's the drama section? And she was like, oh, third floor. And I was like, great. Up I go to the third floor. And they had, this is remarkable, like, I don't know, this is true of all public libraries, obviously, but they had a whole floor of drama. What? It was crazy. They had audio recordings and, pl- you know, plays and plays and plays and plays, stacks and stacks and stacks of plays. That's, that's amazing. Uh, it was like, like heaven. It was usually, like, <laughs> I, I imagine it to be like a dark corner. A dark corner. And the light doesn't work above that corner. <laughs> and nobody know. goes back there. And you're like, bro. There's a drip. <laughs> There's <laughs> the a drip. The wet. <laughs> no, this was like a whole floor. So I don't know. Maybe That's this incredible. librarian was like a theater person right. or something. So so I first of all, I was daunted because I, I did expect the kind of small corner with nothing. And, uh, and I was like, oh, my God, this is a lot of stuff to read. But I just sort of said, okay, I'm going to read 10 plays a week. And I, and I, cause I said, if I want if she says I should write a play, I should know what a play is. So I was right. like, 
So I just gave myself that task of reading 10 plays a week indiscriminately across the stack. So they were out of order in terms of chronology, theater history chronology, um, centuries, in and out of translation. Um, And I was just kind of reading all these plays, one after the other, one after the other, really fascinated by, like, the form. And then I read a play called, we stopped for a second to wait for the door. You can come in. No, we're, we're, we have a few minutes left, but you can come in. We'll cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go? Yeah. Okay. So I'm in the stacks, and I picked up a play of Tennessee Williams that has two different titles, depending on who's doing it, which is one, the two-character play, or Outcry. Mm-hmm. So Outcry or two-character play. And uh, it had in the back of it... Um, some they used to do this. They don't do this as much anymore with print, printed plays. But they had like a photograph of the original set from the first production. Oh yeah, and design like some sketch of the original design of it. And I, I was fascinated. I was like, I love that stuff. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I was like, what? This is this is amazing because I couldn't. I was trying to figure out how to. You know, the plays were like just literally, you know, there were text. And as I was text, right. okay, stage direction. Oh, you had to put the whole process, process together. together. Yeah, and so yeah. I saw the design for that, for that original design. I was, it was like a cube. It was like really interesting. And I was like, oh, you can do that. Oh, this is so cool. And so suddenly it was like a light switch went off. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I want to figure this out, part out. And so then that, that kind of redirected how I was reading the plays in, in terms of my little self-tutorial process. And then I read, and it still felt all daunting, and then I read David Mamet's work, his early writing. And, and I think I was intoxicated by A, the whole the cursing in it right. uh, because it's intoxicating and he's so good at it. But also there was a kind of specific American vernacular. It felt like jazz. Mm-hmm. It just felt like jazz on the page. It just was like so cut to the bone and so clear. And I was like, oh, you can do that too? And I was like, because I was reading Beck. And Beck, it seems impossible. You know, it's like impossible. I don't know how to do that. But then I was read him, and Pinter also seemed impossible. Then I read Mamet, and I was like, that seems possible. Mm-hmm. That seems like, and it's in the American voice, like that sort of whatever that idea of the American voice was here. We are in Chicago, right, where he's from. So, right. And I was like, oh, this is exciting to me. And so then I was like, so then I just wrote a play. I wrote a play. I got to end of play. I wrote 40 pages. I said, I'll get to end of play. That was really important to me. And um, I was having fun playing all the parts because that's what you do as a writer. And so the performer part of me was really excited. Uh, and, you know, and creating these relationships and the dynamics and all of that. And it was very, like, faux mammoth. It was very, like, you know, whatever. But <laughs> it was about dispossession, things I'm still interested in, dispossession, whose voices are not being heard, underrepresented, you know, stories. Um, a kind of romantic sort of view of the world. Uh, and... Um, and I wrote it, and I put it in a drawer. And I was like, oh, my God, I finished a play. I was so excited. I finished a play, oh, yes. That's amazing. And it was like a private project of mine. Like, I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing. My parents were like, what is she doing in a room? It's <laughs> like, right, leave me alone, I'm writing. You right. know? And, then, and then a week, a week or two later, I reread it back to myself. And I was like, oh, this is awful. So I had... Which you, is were, you were such a playwright I already. was such a playwright. Right. I was like, <laughs> I did have that thing of like, great American play, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know, I mean, it's t- I was 14. It was totally ridiculous. And so, so then I was like, 
this is terrible. Oh, I'm a terrible writer. And I just put it back in the drawer. And I was like, I should take some acting classes. And so what I did is I took acting classes at the local park. And, uh, in Miami? In Miami. And I, because I wanted to know what it was like to be inside text, which is what you do as a yeah. As a writer, you yeah. have to be inside text, but as an actor, you have to really be inside text. Like inside, 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 yeah. and know what the machinery is. Mm-hmm. And so then, then that was like an interesting experiment because I I spent a long time just kind of taking acting classes. I went to undergrad thinking I wanted to be an actor, even though I was writing. I was sort of writing for me, and my friends to do things, and um, and then the writing took over. Like the writing became like oh, so I won a national contest when I was eighteen. They suddenly flew me out, and like I got to be like the writer seeing the play, mm-hmm. and then I was like, "This is heaven." Yeah, this is yeah, heaven because yeah. I don't have to be on stage to do it. It can exist like when I'm not in the room, but it's still me. This is sort of really fun, and other people get to bring their amazing creativity to the work. How much fun is that? Like I don't know how they're going to treat it. This is awesome. So I was like, really, the whole thing of it was like such a trip. And also, I just felt I was the happiest doing that. And so, um, so I was like, I was pursuing. So really, it was pursuit of happiness. I was just like, and then I just became obsessed. I was like, from like the middle of undergrad forward, I was like playwriting, playwriting, playwriting. I could not stop thinking about it, and I and that's all I wanted to do. So that's, that's how I got into it. And is that all you've done since? Has it been just like? Yeah, except that I had a minor in translation, so the theatrical translator part of me has always been a parallel career and then and then the the editor the editor part of me happened late it sort of happened when i was i had a fellowship at an nea tcg fellowship at the taper in los angeles and uh, i i was like you know kind of like it's when I worked on Out of the Fringe, that anthology and i and at simultaneously I was working on a collection of my Lorca translations and a collection about uh, Irene's uh, legacy and work, uh, interviews and, and essays with other writers and practitioners that had worked with her. And uh, so those three things were happening at the same time, but the Out of the Fringe anthology is what instigated it because what happened was that I was like, these amazing plays should be out in the world. Why isn't anybody publishing them? And I just, because I got on a tear about it, and I was like, hmm. there should be another volume that responds to On New Ground, which was that amazing volume that TCG published way back when in the 80s. And so I was like, it's got to happen. It's got to happen. And then I just was like, I'm an editor. <laughs> what just happened? Like, I just started to kind of like, and I had so much fun doing it because those three books were happening at the same time in my life. I was like, copy editing the Fornes book, copy editing the Lorca translations and copy editing the Out of the Fringe anthology all at once. And then I was like, well, what's the next book? I should be working on it. You know, and, and I, I became really interested in this idea of the editorial, curatorial, mm-hmm. which is a, a form of writing because you're sort of arranging and edit, you know, forming and shaping a narrative for a reader. And, uh, and yeah, then I was like, true. oh, this is what I do, yeah. too. And so that became, like, like directing. Central. It's like a form of directing. It's a form too. of directing, yeah. yeah. But yeah. super, but I find it, like, like a haven. And coincidentally, I mean, this is weird. I did a theater action. It wasn't called a theater action then. Called, uh, um, well, Stations of Desire preceded it. But I did one after 911 called Return to the Upright Position, which was uh, multi-authored. I was the lead editor on it, but I sort of curated the whole event. So it was multi-authored nationally uh, with uh, a bunch of playwrights. I instigated the idea, and I was like, we're doing a response to 911. And uh, somehow, 
because I didn't know what to write. I was mm-hmm. like, we were all kind of like, well, what do we do? And I was like, we have to write something. I don't know what it's going to be. And it's, and, I, and it's, ironically enough, I was like, it's not a play. It'll be something for performance. I don't know, even know what it is. And people just started writing, and we started, we created a national collective together. And that was happening at the same time that I was editing those three books. And that just created this other thing. Like, I was like, oh, I also do this, which weirdly, when I was in grad school, I remember Ann Catania was one of our visiting professors, and she said to me, you sh- if you want to do other things as a writer or a creative person, you shouldn't feel limited to playwright. Like, there are other things one can do. And I was like, and I think because when you're getting an MFA, it's like you're getting an MFA in playwriting, and that's what you do. And I was right. like, but I was kind of like, I want to do other things. <laughs> you know, I just don't want to do that. And I also don't want to be identified just one way as an artist. And and so, and, and I was writing essays, like just sort of academic essays then. And, I, and she said, if you want to pursue that side of, of whatever that is for you, there's a way to do that. And, and, and it's weird because when I was working on those four different projects, three books, and the curatorial sort of response to 911, it's like when it alighted again, like I was like, oh, this this is the way to sort of tr- take that energy, but it also re re impacts the work the other work that I do, and so that became fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it always comes from the it always, to me in my head it always comes from being the playwright, mm-hmm. but but it's the playwright wearing a different kind of hat or ribbon or whatever you want to use <laughs> as any metaphor. <laughs> are you are you a a type of person that? Uh, needs downtimes like like reflection time like no creation time yeah i'm totally i'm not writing all the time i know people have this idea that i'm writing all the time which i'm not uh when i write a play i write and i write to the mat and then when it's i get to end a play i'm very happy and mm-hmm. i do nothing um or i try to do nothing i mean i usually have several projects in the burner and they're and they require different things of me which is why i think i like you know sometimes i'm translating and sometimes i'm adapting and sometimes i'm editing and sometimes because that sort of it's kind of a break. Um, but then I'm also like, I'm a t- you know, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> I love just wandering mm-hmm. and kind of like just hanging out and not doing anything because you need, you need dream time to make. And I think if you're not protective of your dream time, what happens is that you get in a kind of like, it can get very navel gazing. The mm-hmm. writing it can get sort of in one in one sort of little circle, and that's all you're doing. And I, and I think dream time, even just traveling or or just hanging out, you know, having coffee, seeing friends, whatever, seeing other things mm-hmm. in the world, uh, other kinds of performances or you know art or music, um, makes you allows you to have moments of reflection and contemplation, which I think is highly necessary. Uh, just as a human being, period. But also, if you're making, if you're a maker of things, or or one who makes the spaces for things to happen, um, then you sort of need that time to just really listen. And I think that it's because that's actually what's going to tell you where to go next. Mm. You have to find the listening place first. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty. I try to be vigilant about that. It doesn't always succeed, but as life happens. But uh, but I I do kind of try to create even if it's sometimes like two weeks of nothingness somewhere in any given timeline in my schedule i try to make that happen 
It's very, very important. Are you dreaming on anything at the moment? Well, yes, I decided that I was going to write seven plays so <laughs> for this cycle. So I'm, I'm five plays in, two to go. So I am dreaming of the six right now. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm, there's three, there are three kind of like images that are calling to me and they're all tantalizing. And I want to write them all. And I'm like, wait, hold on. <laughs> they can't all be in the same play or maybe they can't. I'm not sure yet. But I think, but I think one is kind of like overriding. It's kind of like winning in my head right now. So that, that may be what I dive into right next. But how, are these, the how are these uh, seven connected? They're connected by... Uh, uh, well, they're all deliberately about uh, what I call uh, communities or, or people that may feel in the position of abandonment in terms of where they are in terms of their economic status, but also in terms of maybe the rest of society. Um, they're all song poem plays uh, in some way, shape, or form. In fact, Trouble and Kind is kind of a blues incantation of a play. Um, so they're, they're moving more in that direction. Uh, and so I keep thinking, what's the next song form I want to want to do on the page? I mean, a fuel is kind of like country punk and, uh, and hurt song is, is just that it's a hurt song. It's, it's, you know, it's just plaintive wailing thing and Holler River, it's his own kind of operatic sort of beast. Um, they're all sort of in the kind of, uh, what I call vernacular, analog, um, southern, at least in my head, you know, sort of delta blues, southern, and Cajun kind of sound. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, I've been mm-hmm. really interested in the accordion lately, and, and uh, accordion, mandolin, um, and just, just, just uh, raw, raw voices, because we hear so much processed music now, so I'm I, I want to sort of get back to a sound that feels really raw, that then translating that into a theatrical thing that deals with dispossession and deals with, um, but also potentiality, not just wailing and, and just, you know, people sort of moaning their lives, but also finding ways to survive and heroically surviving. Uh, so they're about heroic survivals in, in towns, yeah, in yeah. towns that may feel neglected, but also are uh, a map, uh, an invented map, like Faulkner, an invented map of America, uh, maybe at this time, but also uh, kind of if we if we know time as we do know from a physics standpoint that it is that is not linear, that it's also calling back to the ancients and moving forward. So in some regard, so that's what I'm thinking about. That's how they're connected in my brain, anyway. <laughs> I wish we could keep going. Me too. Because. I have so many more questions for you. Oh, we can have coffee but, or wine we later. Should, we should have coffee <laughs> and or wine. Uh, it's nighttime, so maybe wine. Wine. But uh, I know there are, there are people that are itching to get into the building. They are. And uh, we should wrap up. But okay. thank you so much for doing this. Yay. It's been a total joy for me. So much fun. I know. More. more. More, more. More of this. It will happen. All right. Thank you. Yay. Humongous thanks to Caridad for your time and wisdom. If you are anywhere near one of the NNPM premieres of her play Red Bike, you have to go check it out. At the time of this episode's release, it is playing at Sympatico Theater in Philadelphia. Listeners in the Cincinnati area can see the No Theaters production. That's K-N-O-W. That's going to be in January. And those of you in Providence, Rhode Island, get to see it later in 2019 at Wilbury Theater Group. Thanks a bunch to Jackalope Theater for allowing us to record this interview in their space. 
Everybody in Chicago already knows how excellent this theater company is, and I hope the rest of the country knows all about them, too. As always, thank you to Robin Deep at American Theater Magazine. The theme song is by International Pen Pal. Rate and comment on the show at iTunes and subscribe if you haven't already. And thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the end of next month's episode when I'll have something really cleverer to say in this spot. <laughs>